This week, we hold on to our butts after watching Jurassic Park. And along the way, we ask, was this movie trying to be sexy? Is Steven Spielberg commenting on lawyers or technology? And just how timeless is this movie? Life finds a way on force-fed sci-fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome to what is sure to be a thrilling, riveting, exciting entry in the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my co-host, the uh, dino-rific Sean Michael Culp. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard you sound this excited giving an intro before. You sound like a little child, like bursting out of your seat, man. I mentioned last week, I don't need much of a, <laughs> an excuse to watch Jurassic Park. And when this came up in the list, I was beyond excited. Me too. Man, I'm excited to hear you talk about it. <laughs> so please. I've been watching this movie ever since I was like four years old. So I started watching this when I was a wee lad. And uh, like I said, just it's easily one of the best movies ever okay my, yeah my first exposure to jurassic park was jurassic park 3 when i was like eight years old they took me to the theaters and uh i had no idea what i was in for i was absolutely terrified and dreamed of uh velociraptors eating me and when i went to bed actually couldn't go to sleep awesome yeah trauma trauma chris lots of trauma well shall we provide a synopsis of the film real quick here. I think that would be dope. So Jurassic Park is about an eccentric billionaire does what eccentric billionaires do. Uh, buys an island, builds a theme park on this island, and fills it with genetically engineered dinosaurs. Now, before the park is set to open, a group of advisors slash paleontologists, along with a pair of children, become trapped in the park during a massive storm and an act of sabotage, which leads to a power outage and causes chaos and all kinds of mayhem ensues following that. Mm -hmm. There is a no-go on the park. Everything that you think could happen goes horribly wrong. Yeah. And it does. So It's a good synopsis, Chris. Way to go. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> all right. So who's in this film? Like, uh, who's prominent? Because we all know uh, the old Steven Spielberger directs this film, <laughs> one of his cult classics. Not, not even a cult classic, but it's uh, you can't talk about Steven Spielberg without talking no. about Jurassic Park. It's, it's impossible to do that. Yeah. Uh, the screenplay was written by David Kep and Michael Crichton, who, uh, mm -hmm. based off of his uh, book that came out around the same time. The music was composed by the genius, Mr. John Williams. Yes. Uh, cinematography, another uh, previous subject on the show, uh, this uh, man... Did a cinematography of Back to the Future is Dean Cundy. Outstanding. Um, also, person we're a fan of on the show, Kathleen Kennedy was a producer on the yeah. film. She, she, you saw her hands. You could feel her hands all over this in a good way. Yeah, Kathleen Kennedy has this amazing ability to be able to detect what yeah. is going to be a blockbuster and or just what's going to be a good movie, period. She's like the alter ego of Harvey Weinstein. The female version. She's like the complete inverse. She picks great films and doesn't molest people in the process. <laughs> so kudos to you, Kathleen Kennedy. Yeah. Thank you. Now we, we get to the cast yes. portion. We got the old Sam old Neil. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah Sam the, Neil is, uh, is Dr. Grant. Mm -hmm. The legendary Richard Attenborough as John Hammond. 
Uh, Laura Dern as Ellie Sattler. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have the legendary Jeff Goldblum as Dr. <laughs> Ian Malcolm. Yes. Bob Peck as uh, Muldoon, who uh, oh, that's rest right. in peace. He passed away a few years after mm-hmm. this movie came out. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson in one yeah. of his early roles as a... Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Sam Arnold. Yeah, they said, uh, Spielberg said he knew Sam Jackson. This was, I think, before Pulp Fiction. They both came out at the same time. And he knew he was just like a star, right, just to, like, explode. So that's why they couldn't uh, film his death scene, actually. Uh, we also have Wayne Knight, a.k.a. Newman, as Dennis Nedry. Yes. <laughs> uh, B.D. Wan from Law & Order SVU fame as Dr. Henry Wu. And then rounding out the child stars, we have Joseph Mazzello, who has still managed to maintain a Hollywood career, who recently starred as uh, John Deacon in the Bohemian Rhapsody film. Oh, oh, wow. And then we have uh, Ariana Richards as uh, older sister Lex. Uh, Yeah, I haven't seen those two in films, but I guess if he's in Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Maybe I, did you see that film? I didn't. I did. I thoroughly enjoyed it. You loved it? Yeah. I felt like to me it was just a montage of Queen songs and I don't like deal with Queen like that too much. So it was a hard pass. Well, I did find some interesting cast notes as well. All right. What you got for me? I saw that Alan Grant was originally offered to Harrison Ford. What? Yeah. But, That's uh, nuts. But he passed on it because he, um, he felt that the role just fit him too well. <laughs> And I don't think Harrison Ford would have had to do much acting. It also saw Jim Carrey audition for E.M. Malcolm. What? Yeah. Okay. Well, I couldn't see that. He's too, like, he's too rubbery, man. Yeah, we could have gotten a much different movie if those two- That would be nuts. Yeah, we're cast. Yeah, Jim Carrey would be crazy. Thank God we got Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. All right. Any more fun uh, tidbits? Well, the movie was made on a budget of $63 million, which uh, in 2019 money, that's just over our $110 million. Mm-hmm. So pretty good, sizable budget for the time. Oh, yeah. For back in the day. Yeah. And Michael Crichton's book was optioned back in 1989 for about $1.5 million. Wow. And he got an additional five hundred grand to write the film script. So- Dude got away with a pretty good chunk of change. He made a lot. Yeah, normally when your screen when your uh, your book gets optioned if you're an author, the most you could expect to make is in the neighborhood of maybe $500,000 and potentially more if the movie actually does, does well. get well not even do, if it does well, if it actually does get made in Hollywood. Oh, okay. So you you have it's yeah, your option like studios buy it and who knows if it actually could become a movie? Yeah, right. Because it's so hard to get a movie made, period. It, indeed it is. Just getting ideas out there for scripts. But cool. cool but cool. I thought the most interesting aspect of it was the the development of the dinosaur mm-hmm. effects. Yeah, the practical effects. They worked long and hard. There is a documentary. I think I watched like the Blu-ray. I got it from my library and I saw the back like behind the scenes. And I guess initially they wanted this to be made with, like, the practical effects. They didn't want any CGI at all. It was going to be like, what, are the, what do you call those? Like, the claymations? It's stop motion or go motion animation. Like, you, it's, yeah. it was common in, um, I think, a recent example around this time would have been Beetlejuice. Yes. Um, Jason and the Argonauts by, the, uh, by Ray Harryhausen kind of uh, mm-hmm. definitely pioneered the go motion technique yeah and that was like super super expensive but tedious i would say like just think of like if they made the whole monster movie with stop motion yeah i think it would have been it wouldn't have been the same no 
It would be tough. It would honestly, they'd probably, everything would be like miniatures. So they wouldn't mm -hmm. have been able to get that T-Rex scene at the end. So I guess how it went was he saw, Spielberg saw the stop motion. He loved it. But then one of his homies called him and said, hey, I've got this new CGI specs that we're doing. Check it out. And it was just like a bunch of skeleton velociraptors running over like a backdrop of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And I guess Spielberg loved it so much that he just went for it. He said, we're going CGI. But how cool he is, though. The same people, though, that was going to do the stop motion served as the artistic directors. So he still gave him the job. Yeah. He didn't like just write him off and be like, sorry, deuces. Yeah. And I feel that the the man who was originally going to do the go motion technique deserves a shout out. Phil Tippett. Yes. Because he continues to serve Hollywood in a very, very prominent role as like a special effects advisor and a creature advisor on a lot yeah. of films. And his career just it changed from this film. There's a line in the film where he said. What do you say? You're extinct? Like, we're out of a job. Yeah. Don't you mean extinct? Because I guess that's what that line, we're extinct, came from him and his partner when they're talking about stop motion. They're like, oh, shoot, I guess we're out of the job. And then, nope, we're extinct. So, yeah, because uh, right up in, because before Jurassic Park came out, there were three kind of prominent movies that had computer graphics in them. There was, and this was in the documentary on the special features, it was a uh, young Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. There was The Abyss. Yes. And uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which really kind of the first three films to use computer graphics in a prominent way. And then yeah. this film really took it to the next level. Yeah. For the CGI, I mean, how do you think it's aged over time? I think it has aged remarkably well. And that's part of the reason why I could always watch this movie. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not overused. Mm -hmm. There's only about 50 visual effects shots in the entire movie. And dinosaur time only takes up eight minutes of the film. Yeah, which is kind of shocking. Only eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, and I would say maybe half of that is computer effects, maybe. May yeah, because really the only CGI that's really blatant in your face is like the brontosaurus. When like it's, you know, they pull up and it's eating the leaves out of the trees and they show like just how big it is. And then there's the T-Rex uh, chase Chasing. scene. Yeah. And which like busting is, out of the cage. Which is still great mm -hmm. because I just love that shot of it leaning towards the mirror and you just see the caption, objects in here are closer than they appear. I know. That was brilliant. It's just this brief moment of levity in an otherwise just tense moment. Yeah. And then maybe some velociraptors. But they, uh, I think they all aged well. Particularly, my favorite was the T-Rex scene where it comes out, you know, with the Jeep and all that. I think it worked well that it was dark. Yeah, and I think that's why Spielberg said he wanted it to be dark for that scene so that, you know, in case the CGI wasn't as great as it turned out, you could still kind of cheat with it from a filmmaker's standpoint. It's great. <laughs> I loved it. Up until that point in the movie, we didn't know who like the big baddie was going to be. Yeah, yeah. It was in the opening scene when they're pushing that crate into the enclosure. Mm -hmm. All we see is a bunch of big guys with guns yeah. and it's tight security there's a very clear-cut procedure we don't even know what's in that box we don't we don't even know it's you a velociraptor just, until that point i think you just see its eye or something when they start stabbing it and shocking it and, and that's to it. me that's another great shot oh that, that whole beginning scene is awesome you see muldoon's eyes and then you see yeah. you eventually find out that it is a velociraptor which fuels like his relationship with him why he wants you know track him and all that crap i think that's if you're gonna open up a film that's a perfect way to do it. Easily has to be in the like top 10 most legendary yeah. opening scenes of any movie period. I will co-sign you on that, my man.
Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the big thing, though, what helped with the dramatic scenes in this film, I think definitely is the score and the music. Yeah. Like you mentioned your favorite scene was the the T-Rex coming through the fence. To me, my favorite scene is the group's arrival on the island. Okay. And then them driving out to that clearing and seeing the brachiosaurs and then Mm -hmm. the herded dinosaurs. To me, that is just, it's a work of pure genius because you have Steven Spielberg at the top of his blockbuster game. Mm -hmm. And then you also have on the other side, the genius of John Williams Mm -hmm. composing, like showing us the two of the main themes of the film. And, Mm -hmm. And so you have the adventure theme of them flying in the helicopter and landing on the island. Mm -hmm. And then you have the animal theme of them encountering the dinosaurs. And that that dinosaur theme, I can't talk about it enough. Like I almost, I get emotional just thinking about it in my head because bottom line, yes, it is great film music, but it's also beautiful music, period. Yes, it is. And you can actually, for people that listen, you can check it out on Spotify. If you have Spotify, and it's really nice. Yeah, I, I was like running to it. I'm like, this is amazing, super epic, man. And we'll talk about the the score here right now. But if you do want a deep, an audience, if you do want a deeper dive into the score, uh, I am not qualified to talk about music at an in depth <laughs> in a, on an in depth level. But I do recommend another podcast called The Soundtrack Show, where the host David W. Collins is a composer and a hollywood like voice actor oh that's awesome and he did a fantastic deep dive into the score and talked about things that just went right over my head and i cannot recommend you check out uh his two-parter that he did on the jurassic park score sweet so we'll talk about some things here um with john williams and jurassic park i don't know to me the music just conveys this sense of awe and wonder oh yeah well this whole everything the score the sound effects that was in this film was just tremendous how they figured out like what noises to pick for like the t-rex when he bursts through the window you know try and eat the kids i think they mixed like elephants baby elephants was a big one for the velociraptors like a lion's roar and initially i didn't even hear it until i watched the background scenes that i could hear i was like oh snap so that's what these you know it's like a conglomerate of all these sounds which i have to admit to a previous mistake i've made in previous episodes i've actually originally attributed the sound design to ben burt which and that is a mistake on my part actually gary rydstrom did the creature effects and sound design of this film oh wow so i have to admit my mistake mea culpa and give gary (laughs) rydstrom the proper credit he's due definitely for the creature effects too all that like um for the special effects with the dinosaur in and of itself did you know uh for that whole scene when they're like in the jeep that it was a pain in the butt to shoot because when they uh contracted the dinosaur out they guesstimated the weight and they for the mechanics of it it was only designed to move at a certain weight like let's say a hundred pounds and because spielberg wanted it to rain because he's like, this will help the CGI effects and everything. It'll make it look more, like, less dense. Um, he had to have the rain. And the rain on the creature, I guess, caused it to malfunction. So the whole night, like, it was just pain in the ass to shoot. Because the dinosaur just, like, jiggling. Like, it would move a while, and then once it had enough rain on it, would just, like, start shaking. Like, almost like it was cold. Did you also notice, too, that there is no film score during that scene no. when the T-Rex walks through the fence. It's very much like his uh, other movie, Jaws. 
And I actually really like Jaws. And because I, when I initially heard that there was no film score, because I was listening, I'm like, dude, it's literally just sound effects and the kids screaming. And someone in the comments on YouTube was like, yeah, it's like Jaws. So I watched Jaws and it's, it's, I think that's a brilliant tactic that he utilized. We've seen modern films more so like Godzilla or whatnot, that kind of the music is always playing in the background to tell you how to feel. And I really like it when a director doesn't. And it just has like the sheer tenacity of the screams and the peril that these people are in because it's so raw. You're like, holy crap, dude. These guys are really in danger. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's another theme from John Williams that comes up later in the film. It's a four-note motif that's aptly called the Predator theme. Okay. So it's that... Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. most prominently featured... Um, uh, when Muldoon and Sattler encounter the broken raptor fence. Okay. And then also yeah. it's uh, uh, when the raptors are in the kitchen too. Um, also, like I do want to mention a couple little tidbits about John Williams. Sure. Um, this is actually his 12th collaboration at the time with Spielberg. And Schindler's List also that was released in 1993 would be the 13th. So crazy fun fact. Did you know that Spielberg was editing like the special effects to Jurassic Park while filming Schindler's List? Yeah. So he said it was like a crazy, he said, well, number one, he said he would never do it again because just like, think about that. You're filming this Jewish film about like the Holocaust. And some truly horrible things. Horrifying film. And then you're getting these dinosaur montages of like them, you know, driving through this landscape where it's beautiful. I mean, that's got to be just crazy. Take you out of it. And I want you to try and guess how many Oscar nominations you think John Williams has. Oh, my God. He's probably got, I want to say 15, 16, 17. Wrong. You want to know how many he has? Is it like 30? It is 51 <laughs> nominations for Academy Awards. You know who is the only That's person amazing. who has more than that? Oh. Walt Disney. Oh, what? Walt Disney has some, well, because Walt Disney did a lot of work by himself on the early films like Snow White. Oh, okay. So he's so, like credited gotcha. as like a writer and producer and all he's, that. Because he's not still credited even past the grave, right? No. Whenever like a Disney film, they don't like tag him in that. Okay. He's I, He's been dead since the 60s. It's inspired by, it's like, all right, man. Also, John Williams has composed eight of the top 20 highest grossing films of all time. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, if you want a film... <laughs> like a film score done right, U.S. John Williams. He's, I mean, he, what, he's in Star Wars, right? Yeah, he's done a ton of Spielberg war films, yeah. I mean, he's basically, his music is so iconic. The The soundtrack for Jurassic Park actually peaked at 28 on the Billboard charts in 1993, which does not happen. No. Like an orchestral score. score to get no. anywhere near the top 100 is remarkable. I think Star Wars was the first film that um its oh, orchestral yeah. score peaked at number one well yeah it's got that iconic valid man of the stormtrooper march and you can't beat it and i think the music much like what jaws did for it i think the music is a big part of what makes the film timeless yes because there's so yes. many people who without knowing the rest of jurassic park will know the music absolutely i was listening i was watching the lego one on netflix today and it was the intro, and they had the music playing, and my girlfriend's in the other room. She's like, oh, are you watching Jurassic Park? And I'm like, yeah, I guess, the Lego one. But that's cool that people can just pick it out, yeah. man. I guarantee you, you've hummed the Jurassic Park theme at some point in everyone. your life. Everyone. I mean, it's just so, everyone knows it. <laughs> Name that song. No one would ever lose. Yeah, I I can't listen to that soundtrack enough. It's just, it's like I said, it's beautiful music, period. 
if you got some extra money, head on over to the music store on Apple and buy. do yourself a favor and buy the soundtrack. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, too, as we get back to the movie here, let's talk about a couple sciencey things behind the movie. So we want to talk about could a Jurassic Park actually happen, which I feel every lot of people are clamoring for... Like, oh, this technology exists because it's in the movies. Right. Which uh, Don't believe everything in the movies, folks. Yeah. Like Steven Spielberg movies were like <laughs> um, like the, like pre-internet days. Oh, I saw it in a Spielberg movie, so it must be true. It has to happen. But you know what? His film Jaws, though, terrified people to this day, I'm sure, about like going to a beach. Terrified me. Still. <laughs> I'm not terrified of beaches. Sharks. I'm terrified of sharks. Same, brother. I don't mess with them like that. But I found an interesting article on Forbes by uh, Alex Knapp that disproves a few things about the science behind this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a study by the University of Manchester in England that proved that it's impossible to extract DNA from even pre-fossilized amber. Oh, wow. And this was using the best DNA sequencing methods at the time. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so unfortunately we can't extract DNA. And then also they tried... The same team actually tried uh, retrieving DNA from other preserved life forms. So instead of a mosquito, maybe it was like a like a tiny rodent or something. So they're like the MythBusters of DNA. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And a different team discovered in October 2012 that DNA only has a half life of about 521 years. That's pretty cool. Wow. Only so, 521? 25? 21. 21. That's, so after how that, do you find that number? I don't know. <laughs> like, I think you what? have to do, I think there's like carbon dating techniques or aging techniques that you can use to figure that out and oh, extrapolate sure. that over time, which, yeah, after 521 years, it begins to degrade and you can't use it for data collection. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, well, just the idea cross-referencing like a frog's DNA to fill in the holes. When they were talking about that in the movie, I was like, what? What? Because I know a little bit yeah. about the science of DNA. I'm like, this is impossible. But you know what? It's a good throwaway line. Yeah. It matches it up really cool. It has a nice little cartoon. And then another article I read on iflscience.com further expanded on what you were talking about, mm-hmm. saying that even using DNA from other animals to fill in the gaps is impossible without knowing which gaps to fill. Exactly. There's so much that goes into it. Well, that's science for you, man. Well, that's not all, easy. Well, that <laughs> did lead into the creature design of the film because a lot of paleontologists were criticizing the creature design, saying like, well, yes. they didn't look like that. Well, that can be explained by saying, well, they use frogs or other DNA to fill in those gaps. Yeah, because velociraptors are, like you were saying, they're less. They're like almost little birds, like yeah, three feet at max. They're like big chickens is what they yeah. were. Yeah, whereas it's, that was a smooth, though. It's a smooth trick to use the frog DNA because then you can write off any inconsistencies and be like, oh, it's the frogs. And also, too, in the movie, they mentioned that they use unfertilized emu or ostrich yeah. eggs to make the dinosaurs. Uh, turns out injecting DNA into an egg doesn't magically make an embryo. <laughs> right. You need to replace the genetic material uh, from a donor cell of an animal that you're trying to clone. Yeah, we've been trying that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you have to use the similar genetic material. Like you could try cloning like a silverback gorilla from a chimpanzee egg or mm-hmm. chimpanzee embryo because it's similar DNA. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, so <laughs> cloning a it's dinosaur tough. from an ostrich egg just doesn't make a ton of sense. It does not. How did you like the evolution in the film? Like how they're like, oh, it's all females. But then the velociraptors, I guess, changed sex organs and like just started maybe by themselves laying eggs. 
evolution on crack is basically <laughs> what it was. Evolution on steroids. It was, man. I was like, what? It's like they poured some Gatorade into the evolutionary exactly. process. Like, what the heck's going on? Uh, that but was kind of interesting. I think it was more a commentary on man's hubris. Yeah. Again, we recently talked about something like this on uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Mm-hmm. It's trying to control a system that's not meant to be controlled. Yeah. And this is Malco- uh, Dr. Malcolm's big thing with the chaos theory. Yes. That whole shtick that he was on, the whole film. Yeah, you can't put boundaries on nature. You can't try and control a system that's not meant to be controlled. No. Because the book actually talks about that, too, where they try to use uh, cameras and algorithms to predict, like, an animal's population because they don't actually know. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but then, of course, the animal's sex changes. Yeah. And they're able to breed. And use and door all, handles. Yeah, and all that is just thrown, all the algorithms and tracking just is thrown out the thrown window. thrown in the freaking trash. God, that's that's got to be a scientist nightmare. Yeah. A researcher, you're just like, what works? So we talked about could a Jurassic Park happen. Yeah. Now it's appropriate to ask, should a Jurassic Park happen? I no. wanna I'm, I'm interested in hearing your take on this. So, Sean, you, you immediately said no. No. So, what do you, so Sean, <laughs> what leads you to say no? Dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago for a reason, man. Bringing them back is just, it's, it's not working for me, man. Why would I want to bring back dinosaurs, number one? And number two, would it even be possible? Well, obviously not. But if we could, for an off chance, no, I wouldn't be interested. Because I, I, like, what would you do? Put them in cages? So, like, a zoo, you know? And I could just see lawsuits from, like, PETA. <laughs> and, like, have you seen Jurassic Park 5? Yes. Yeah, like the whole series with that. Like they're talking about animal rights. It would, it would just be too messy. What would you charge for the park? Like in this film, they talk about 10000 a day, 5000 You know, who would you cater to? So I, that's a hard no. I have to agree with you too. And I, our views are kind of lined up with the scientists in the movie. Because even yeah. I think Malcolm says it best when he says that genetic power, in short, interrupts the natural order of things. It does. It does. You just got to let it go, man. Like Frozen, you just got to let it go. <laughs> well, he has that great line, too. I mean, you wield it like a kid that's found his dad's gun. Yes! He's got the best lines in this whole freaking movie. I love Jeff Goldblum. He's like a rock star. Well, everybody else seems to be opposed to this park, except Hammond and the money-hungry lawyer. Yeah. Well, uh, Malcolm, uh, the whole time, he didn't like the park, and his lines were great. But I liked how the scientists at first, they were like blown away. They thought this was like the coolest thing ever. Oh my God, it's like sliced bread. And then they're like, oh, hell no, we ain't going to watch this. We ain't going to this. And then the lawyer just saw dollar signs. But and then Muldoon comes up when they're seeing the raptor pen and says they should all be yeah. destroyed. So uh, yeah. I think he, I don't think he's opposed to the park as a whole. No. But I think it should be a, meant to be a place of recreation and not danger. Yes. Recreation, not danger. I agree with that. Yeah, it's like zoos have tigers and, and bears and all that, but they're they're in a confined space where you're still able to enjoy them and marvel at them, but they don't offer tiger interactions, you know? No. Oh, hell no. <laughs> that would be no. Though there are zoos in, I think, Japan or China where you basically get in a bus and it's like a giant cage and they just take you through like a tiger Jurassic Park S Park where the tiger can literally come up to the cage and get like inches from you and you have like meat sacks dangling over the yeah it's you have to sign a waiver obviously in case you get eaten that's going to be a hard no for me but i think i might actually be down for that i'll amend my response to Jurassic Park 
if there's no dinosaur, if there's no Tyrannosaurus Rex, no Velociraptor, or any potential life-threatening dinosaurs, and it's just like a bunch of Brontosaurus, I'm down. But once you throw in like the Predator, the Apex Predator, I'm no. Well, that's also a good point. I I, I want to discuss about this too. Um, a lot of people might consider this to be a monster movie. Yeah. And then there's also there's a good camp of people who say who are diametrically opposed to that. That it's not a monster yeah. movie. Okay. What do you say? Is this a monster movie or is it not? No. I thought it was initially, but I hadn't seen it in a while. And when I watched it, I'm like, dude, this is way more complex than your basic, like, eat them, pick them off one at a time. This film, like, has family values. It talks about consumerism, capitalism, science, entertainment, um, and the usage of the creatures and how they kill the humans is all warranted. And it's used to tell a story. It's not just like to showcase, look at what our dinosaurs can do. I would say Jurassic Park 3 is more like a monster film, like where they're just eating people and you're just watching people get picked off. This, this, is, this tells a story. This is like Back to the Future. It's like a family. It's got everything that you could ever want in great cinema. How about you? Well, I think um, I have to agree with you, but I think it mostly comes from the direction of Spielberg. Yes. Because he comes from a place of love and wonder of dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And there are several scenes that really do contradict this uh, working theory that this is a monster movie. Yeah. You have the arrival on the island, which you see Grant and Sattler just get out of the truck and wonder Mm -hmm. at at the Brachiosaurus that's eating the leaves. Yeah. And then there's also the scene where they find the sick Triceratops. Yeah. Well, with the Triceratops being sick- and like throwing in the science for why it could be sick and like having that element of wonder adds to a different, like it's totally different than a, what a monster film would be. Monster film would have the Triceratops like chasing after them right from the get-go and I don't think it would have kids. No. And if it did have kids, they wouldn't be utilized as the kids are in this film. But you also see in that scene, because it really is a beautiful scene, yeah. you see Grant just laying on top of the Triceratops yeah. and soothing, trying to soothe her while she's sick and in pain. He's moving up and down. Yeah, and you see Ellie in tears because she's yeah. seeing a live dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And up until this point, because they're still in the tour, they haven't seen any dinosaurs to this point. Yeah, it's so moving. Yeah, it's a great scene because initially you don't know what dinosaur they're going to see. Mm-hmm. All this, You just hear these low roars in the distance and you're thinking like, okay, maybe it's like a like a predator or something. But no, Grant just charges on in there and sees it's just this this poor sick triceratops he made a good choice spielberg for having a triceratops and a practical effect like an actual prop like that was just perfect even towards the end where it becomes more like about the predators Mm -hmm. even that doesn't feel like a monster movie no that feels more like a suspense portion of the film yes and the reason why the monsters are coming out after them is due to the actions from like ned and like all it's like a pandora's box it's all coming like there it wasn't in their control and it all had a great payoff in the end with the t-rex eating the raptor yeah and you mentioned too i mean we there are some deaths in this movie yes but not at all what i would consider to be gruesome no no every single one of them had the perfect meaning and they're executed so quickly like uh the guy at the beginning when he gets pulled into the cage it's done you know he's struggling and then boom you, you forget about it. Yeah. You move on. 
you don't see like the dinosaur ripping him to shreds for like five minutes. No, and then we get the um to me probably the most satisfying death in the movie is uh, Gennaro, the lawyer. The lawyer? Because okay. he's just he is not the nicest dude in the movie. No, even to the kids. Yeah. <laughs> Does he's, that look expensive? Because he's down. coming to the island to pretty much pick apart what John Hammond has built. Yeah. And the second he sees this gorgeous dinosaur, his first thought is we're going to make a fortune with this place. He does not care about He doesn't people. come from a place of understanding or appreciation for what these creatures are. He just sees it as a cash grab. Yeah. Or I think even for human life. Because mm-hmm. like they talk, Hammond's like, I want Jurassic Park to be able to be visited by everyone of all cultures and economic. And he's like, well, we'll have like a coupon day. It's like, you dick, man. <laughs> I hated him. Well, there was also that. that scene, too, when they're doing that rotating tour. Mm-hmm. It it almost seems like he's even doubting what he's seeing behind the scenes. Yeah. When he asks, like, are these animatronics too? Like, you know there are no animatronics. This seems like a, a really dumb doubting question on your part. Yeah. <laughs> it's all real, brother. Though, speaking of uh, animatronics, uh, here's a quick fun fact. Did you know the actors only had, like, the prop? Yeah. And they had, like, nothing. This is, I guess, for the listeners too. Like, they had no... They didn't know what the dinosaurs were going to look like. Yeah. It's like every movie nowadays seems to have a bunch of visual effects. This was in the infancy of visual effect shots. These actors deserve all the credit in the world because they are reacting to nothing. Nothing. (laughs) It's literally a white piece of paper with an X and they're just told to look. Like if you watch the behind the scenes, it's like Spielberg's making noises. He's like, look over there. It's a monster. Look afraid. Well, also... uh I do like Muldoon's death in the film. You like Muldoon's death? I like that too. To me, Muldoon was the best character in the movie. You Really? Yeah. You thought he was okay? Yeah. Interesting. Well, Dr. Grant has the best arc in the movie, okay. going from not liking kids to all of a sudden being this father figure protector mm-hmm. to Lex and Tim. But Muldoon understands these animals in a way not a lot of people do. Yeah. Like, he he understands how dangerous these animals can be. Well, immediately from the beginning. Yeah. And that's a reality of working with animals on any level. It's You have to respect the animal because it can hurt you. Yeah. He's very grounded, and he knows exactly what they are from the beginning. He knows their crap, and they eat his homie, and he wants to end them. Like, the whole time, he has the gun, he goes for the shells. Well, that was a great bit of foreshadowing in the movie because- Muldoon's about to come up on this raptor who seems to just be hanging out mm-hmm. like by a log. And as Muldoon's about to take a shot, that other raptor comes in, the clever girl moment. Yes. Yeah, it, that's the foreshadowing from Dr. Grant earlier in the movie when he's talking about the raptor hunting. Yeah, like they're banging on the the electric lines, like testing it all. And then like one will be over there while the other's over there. It's He was brilliant. <laughs> it was nice how it fulfilled itself, man. Yeah. If Muldoon hadn't died in this movie, I would have loved to have seen him return in other films. Yeah. Well, that's just it. I, for some reason, when I first saw it, I forgot that Muldoon wasn't the actor from uh, the second Jurassic Park. Yeah. Pete Postlewaite. Yeah. Who we've s- talked about on the show before. We have. And I thought for some reason he was the same guy, but they weren't. They're just kind of similar, but his character was awesome. I still like, uh, I think Grant. Is my favorite though. 
Yeah. He's, he's my faith in this film. Him and uh, I like Jeff Goldblum, but that's because I like Jeff Goldblum <laughs> as a person. This movie's a bit weird with that because you have this long lingering shot of Jeff Goldblum after he's injured. His shirt is wide open and he's like laying down like he's posing for a painting. And he just has this heavy breathing going on. Dude, he's a meme. He's literally, a, he's a pillow. You can get that image on a pillow. Yeah, and then you have Muldoon walking around in boy shirts yeah. for the entire film. And then you have Ellie Sattler, who, um, again, she's walking around in shorty shorts, and her like half of her shirt is gone. Laura Dern. Like, th- I don't know if this movie was trying to intentionally be sexy, <laughs> but there was just like so much going on that was weird. They were trying to sell khaki shorts. Maybe that's it. I mean- To say, hey, khaki shorts are sexy too. That was now. slightly distracting, but I mean, did you have anything in the form of a lens flare? In a lens flare, uh, I think we both talked about this. The only problem, I only have two things that I did not like about this film. One was the kid getting electrocuted from 10,000 volts and somehow surviving. And then the second one was when the T-Rex jumps over, like breaks out of the cage. But, you know, it seems like the land is, there's no drop off. But when they get by the cage, it's like a freaking ravine, yeah. you know, where the Jeep goes down. It's like, wait, what? What? How how did T-Rex stand up there and eat the goat then? Yeah, so the same hole that the T-Rex walked through is now suddenly, it's now a 400-foot cliff and he's dropping a car off of it. I don't know if he jumped up or if it's like the cliff is next to it. I don't know. Which I don't know know what's scarier, the fact that it's a T-Rex or if it's a T-Rex that can leap 450 feet and clear a tall fence like that. Well, that's just it. And if he can leap that, then he should have done it before. So that's I think that was just Steven Spielberg messing up by accident, being like, "Oh, I'd be this would be a great shot," you know. But he forgot the consistency. But otherwise, those are my two lens flare gripes. I would also lump into the scene where Ellie is uh, sifting through the dinosaur poop. Why is that? Because uh, I mean, she doesn't find anything wrong anyway. No. So it's it's inconclusive, and she just spent all that time digging through the poop for nothing. But also. I actually had a problem with that, now that you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Poop gets all over her, and she doesn't even wipe it off. Well, she's wearing those gloves. No, no, but it's literally like crap droppings go on her shorts, on her skin, and she like just, nope, no big deal. I'm just going to like take off the gloves. I'm like, dude, that's like animal dungus right there, and you're just going to let it touch you? So that was my gripe when I saw I said, oh, disgusting. Well, what about a red shirt? We, we talked about the deaths a little bit. Were, did you feel there were any red shirts in the movie? The only red shirts to me were the cows and the goats that were getting slaughtered by these animals. You know, again, we have another example of these poor barnyard animals getting yeah. sacrificed to show that the dinosaurs do eat. I can't believe it, man. In all these films we've reviewed so far, how many freaking animals are just like mutilated? If there is a listener out there, please, (laughs) we beg you to look back at what we've discussed and just track how many barnyard animals that have been killed. Yes. And if you want to make a drinking game out of it too, do a shot for every time we mention it. (laughs) That would probably make this even more fun. (laughs) But for real though, uh, I think those are my only red shirts. How about you? You know, honestly, I don't think I had one. Yeah. It's just, like you said, every death serves a purpose at mm-hmm. some point in the movie. Yeah. You know, Joffrey in the beginning, he he's meant to ser- show the audience that this is danger, what we're walking into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have um, uh, Gennaro, and was, who was, we already talked about him. You have well, Nedry, who was uh, trying to uh, gain some nefarious 
uh, he was sabotaging the island for nefarious purposes. The real, really, probably the only villain, right, in this whole thing. Ned. If you could call him that, Dennis Nedry. Yeah, and he's not even like a villain. He's, he's just, just some greedy. Dude that wants to make money. Yeah. Which, I mean, if you think about the money, oh, are they going to pay him like 75K up front yeah. and then another 75? So I'm like, $150,000 just to steal? Well, I think it was $1.5 million. Oh, $1.5 million? Yeah. So it was $750,000. Thousand. Yeah, they were going to give him money up front, and then they were giving him money based on the embryos that he was able to get off. Gotcha. Okay. Because it was really quick. But I did like the shaving can, though. Yeah. That's pretty dope. I've heard that you can actually get, like, buy that prop. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, which I would be interested in buying. (laughs) That's actually, yeah. (laughs) I didn't know you could. I I was actually happy when he died, though, to be... Honest, that was that's one of my. I think that's my favorite yeah. death in the film. Well, there's also too. There's a uh, Mr. Arnold. All we find left of him is his arm. Yeah. So I don't know if you knew, but Samuel Jackson he couldn't film the scenes. They were gonna have him die. Yeah. Like they're gonna do some Velociraptor takedown, but he was gone and being a big movie star. So they were like, well, here's a prop arm. Let's just put it up there. Which I do have to mention that that scene when Ellie turns the power back on. Yeah. That's a great scene. With the dinosaur peeking through. Every single time I watch it, that movie and a Velociraptor busts through the pipes and starts roaring at her, it still freaks me out. Yeah. Even though I know it's coming, despite how many times I've seen it, it still scares me. And it's the only jump scare in the film. And it's well-timed. I wouldn't even call it a jump scare. I would just call it like this tension filled scene yes. that's just like you don't know if she's gonna get eaten no no it, the see the movie does very well building up action having rising action falling action and the climax do you want to talk about the climax let's first discuss the raptors in the kitchen yes so i love the kitchen scene i think that's my favorite next to the t-rex the rain scene because i love the aesthetics of the reflective like how everything's chrome and you see the reflection. It's kind of cool. It's like going into like a circus where, you know, like one may, one way mirrors and like you're just surrounded by the house of mirrors. Love that. My favorite is when she, the chick is struggling in like the little container and she can't close the lid. And then you see the Velociraptor jump and it's her reflection. Gets me every time. I'm like, oh no, is she going to close it? And I'm like, oh wait. Yeah, in in the way almost um, the opposite of the T-Rex scene, there's music in yes. in the Raptors in the Kitchen mm-hmm. portion. In a way, yeah, the Raptors do become the main villain yes. of the movie. I think it's right here at this point. Because mm-hmm. not only is there one, like all of a sudden the second one shows up. Yep, it's executed perfectly. I mean, the scenes of the feet walking and all that jumping on the counters, they're terrifying little bastards. I didn't understand how that ladle just like turned and fell off and it alerted the Velociraptors like, hey, what's that? I know, (laughs) food. And then they trapped the the other one in the freezer too, I guess. Yeah. Like, I don't know, they're going to save it for uh, Velociraptor steaks later? I guess so. Medium rare. Stay in here for about a couple of days. You'll freeze to death. We'll come back and eat you. <laughs> oh, man. It's got to be gross. But then once uh, Lex and Tim escape from the kitchen, then mm-hmm. we get the, uh, I guess we get, we finally get to the climax of the film. where the, the, I mean, the power's back on, but now they actually have to turn on the systems in the park. Yes. And this role, the role of the two, of Lex and Tim, the two children, was actually reversed in the book. Okay. Like Tim was the older one and Lex was the younger the younger one. Tim was sort of like the computer whiz. Oh, okay. So that was switched for the movie. And I really like that the girl, the young kid, was the computer whiz. 
because it, you, you see it so often in films where it's like the older brother saves the day and the young sister is the one that makes all the wrong moves. But it's like, really, they both screw up in their own way. And like, neither of them are like the liability, you know? Yeah. And I love that she turns on the power, man. Figures it out. But then they get it, and then they get into the, the Velociraptors break through the window. <laughs> they turn the locks and everything. Yeah, and then they have to, they escape into the uh, rotunda with all the bones and everything. Yeah? And yeah, that, I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. Great scene, man. Yeah, and then it looks like all all hope is lost, and they're going to get eaten by the two Velociraptors. The T-Rex swoops in. It saves Bam. the day, and then the that adventure music mm-hmm. kicks in with that that great theme. That that's still such an exciting scene to watch. It is. I like that the banner falls down with the di- It's like something about going extinct. Yeah, when <laughs> dinosaurs rule the earth. Yeah, dinosaurs rule the earth. And you know, I think I think T-Rex. like casual like fans of the of the movie may call that a lens flare. Yeah, but I don't. I think that's a nice dramatic flare to like this great adventure that we've just watched. Yes. And initially, I guess they weren't going to have the T-Rex in it. No. It, it was just going to be Velociraptors. And when they're on the skeleton, it was going to fall down and just like um, penetrate. And like, it was going to be really brutal. But then Spielberg was like, no, we need the T-Rex to come in. It would be perfect. The ending was so, was storyboarded very dramatically different than what we got. Yes. Because originally, and this just surfaced recently that, uh, John Hammond was uh, storyboarded to die. Yeah, he was gonna get eaten on a, a like a table model of Jurassic Park by a Velociraptor. I mean, that's cool too because it you know it fits. It's it's artistic. You know, very fitting. The creator dies on his creation. Well, John Hammond was also uh, he also was killed in the original book. I see. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was killed by a pack of like sm- the the smaller dinosaurs, yeah. the Compies, who appear in later. Yeah. Entries in the franchise. Okay. But um, this one in, in the movie is originally set to be killed by a Velociraptor oh. in what looked to be uh, almost a gruesome way. Yeah. What Was anyone else supposed to die in the book? Or yeah, Ian Malcolm actually died in the book. Or it's implied that he died because he spends the movie in like this morphine-induced haze. Oh, so it's okay. implied that he died, but nobody actually knows that he died in the first book. Okay. So it's all up in the air. Yeah. I gotcha. But it ends in that great way. They escape the island, and then you just hear, again, that score just slowly kind of come in with the piano, and then it plays over the credits, and mm-hmm. the the adventure has concluded, and they are safe. Yes. Although another difference from the book, though, the Costa Rican Air Force, which uh, Costa Rica doesn't have an Air Force, by the way, <laughs> they, uh, they bomb the island. They destroy the island. What? Yeah, they destroy the island, and they kill all the dinosaurs in the book after they've escaped. Oh, that's nuts. So if it were up to the Costa Rican Air Force, there would be no sequels. <laughs> well, they're not. Uh, that wasn't a bad move on their choice. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, the sequels aren't as great. So, yeah, this adventure has wrapped up. We're taking on this glorious ride. Yeah. Let's let's discuss the legacy of Jurassic Park, shall we, Sean? I'm down. It's a great film. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So where do we begin? Like well, we've talked about CGI let's, and basically how that's impacted all films. Let's discuss the year the movie came out. So sure. like we said, it was 1993. It grossed $914 million. 914. That's So nuts. this was actually, it became the highest grossing film of all time when it came out. It's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and just for context, the second highest grossing film in 1993 was Mrs. Doubtfire with $441 million. 
Oh my gosh. So Jurassic hey. Park doubled the gross of Mrs. Doubtfire, which is insane. But also a good film. Yeah, Jur- this Jurassic Park was eventually unseated by Titanic in 1997. Yeah. But it would eventually cross the $1 billion gross mark during its 2013 re-release, which I did see. I saw you that saw twice. You saw the re-release twice? Okay. I, I went to see it, and then I took my parents to see it because my parents were the biggest reason for me like introducing me to this movie and loving it for <laughs> for years and years. So I like I'm repaying them back for all of that. And I don't think for this film they haven't like retooled or noodled with any of the CGI. All they anything. did with the re-release was they uh they cleaned up the picture and they did they didn't redo anything with the sound. They just cleaned it up for the IMAX presentation. Sweet. Thank you Spielberg for not pulling a Lucas yeah. and just noodling. <laughs> We did not want any more dinosaurs shoved into the frame. So won three Academy Awards. Sweet. uh, Best sound editing, best sound mixing, and best visual effects. Makes sense, man. Yeah, the sound is incredible in this film. So this was also the same year that Schindler's List was up for all those Academy Awards, and it ended up winning for Best Picture, Best Director, and a bunch of other ones. So Spielberg dominated the Oscars. Oh, 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 yeah. So out of the 23 Academy (laughs) Awards... That year, yeah. Spielberg Films won 10 of them. <laughs> Just a sweep. Wait, but so John Williams, the uh, song track, didn't take home the gold? No, Schindler's List did. Oh, okay. Did, did, was he doing Schindler's List? Yeah, he did do Schindler's oh, okay. List. So, so we got one either way. But still, man. But Jurassic Park is a lot more memorable than Schindler's List. Schindler's List is still a, a great movie if you're but... in for a downer of a four-hour <laughs> experience. If you want to be depressed about life for a week, watch it. Yeah. I I do have to say, I hum the Jurassic Park theme song, just like Back to the Future, more so than the Schindler's List. Yeah, I will agree with that. That was a misfire on the Academy. You know, I was actually surprised to learn this, too, that Jurassic Park actually won a ton of foreign language film awards. I didn't know it that. It won uh, one in Japan and another one from the Czech Republic. <laughs> They love it overseas. Yeah, and obviously it spawned an entire franchise, which which we won't get into today. I mean, we, we, we could be here for a couple of hours talking about the Jurassic Park as series as a whole. But see the first. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to see any of them, see the first, because it's the best. Yeah. It helped give uh, the Toronto Raptors the name of their NBA team. No way. The newly crowned NBA champion Toronto Yay! Raptors. <laughs> which, c- congratulations to that team. Right on. Had they gave them the name? Yeah, it helped uh, inspire the name the Toronto Raptors. Oh, that's nuts. Yeah, because I think the fr- uh, that they got a franchise in I think 1994, 1995. Yeah. So this was still pretty much on people's uh, minds at the time. That is so cool. And we discussed this too. I think the biggest impact of this film can be seen in the evolution of computer graphics and subsequent blockbusters since. Oh, by far. No one had done anything like it since, or at the time, and then now it's just blossomed. And the graphics still hold up. Yes. Which is something that you don't see. And look this up too. We had a previous uh, film in our list that was uh, selected for this honor I'm about to talk about. So... In 2019, Jurassic Park was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress. 2019? 18. 18. Joining Back to the Future as the other film in our list that we have talked about, which if something were to happen to all the other copies of Jurassic Park in existence, the Library of Congress has all subsequent like forms of media that this could be available on for viewing. So it is, it will be safe if the worst should happen. (laughs) Yeah. If there is an apocalypse, you could always rent. 
Jurassic <laughs> Park from Congress. So to me, that's the highest honor a movie can get. I will second that. So with all that in mind, Sean, what rating do you give to 1993's Jurassic Park on our scale of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host viewing parties? Chris, I would say you better grab your raptor claws and T-Rex hat. Because we're hosting a, a freaking viewing <laughs> party, man. <laughs> we're hosting one. Get those Velociraptor tails. Because we're getting like, we're going to make deviled eggs and they're going to be the raptor eggs. We're doing it all, man. I think we might have to actually plan that because that's also my rating as well. Is, no way. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's very tough, but uh, I love it. It's great. If you like cinema and cinema history, I say you got to watch it, man. To me, this is the definition of a perfect movie. Yes. It has tension, suspense, excitement, groundbreaking visual effects, in addition to some of the best work that John Williams has ever done. Yeah. This is a film that every summer blockbuster should aspire to be. Absolutely. And it has and will continue to entertain people for years to come. You can revisit it at any time, learn something new. It hits on all levels, whether you're a kid or an adult. Yeah. Kick butt, Spielberg. Way to go, man. I'm almost sad that this movie has come up so early in uh, yeah, a podcast right. <laughs> run. But uh, that also means that we can add in the other Jurassic, some other yes. Jurassic Park films. So by no means are we done with the franchise. No, I want to slog through it once we get to three. Good God. But this is great starter. So enough of Jurassic Park. <laughs> what do you say we pick our film for next time, Sean? Let's do it. Let's consult Major Samain. Yes, we're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha. <laughs> And from a list of 118 films, she has selected number 91. It is the 2008 found footage film directed by Matt Reeves. It is Cloverfield. Cloverfield. Then we get a, a giant monster movie <laughs> up next. Dude, how ironic. We talked about if this is a monster film. And then we get a monster we film. We get an animal film, and then we get an actual monster film after that. All right. Sweet. I'm excited. I think that about wraps it up on uh, this edition of the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It helps drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Force Fed Sci-Fi. You know, please comment, like, we love chatting with you guys. You can check out and download episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts, and please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. Force-fed sci-fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.